it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, June 29th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for listening every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time right here. We always appreciate it. If you can't listen during those hours as we air, there's a podcast for that. It is always free. It is always on demand after the show. GuyBensonShow.com, GuyBensonShow.com, or FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I also encourage you to follow us on social media, at GuyBensonShow. That is Twitter. That is also Instagram. I'm the political editor at townhall.com. I'm a Fox News contributor as well, part of the job description. And tonight I'll be on the panel with Brett Bayer for special report. That's in the 6 p.m. hour on Fox News Channel. I believe Molly Hemingway is on the panel as well. And the rumor is we'll be on set with Brett. So that should be fun. Hope to see you there coming up around 645 Eastern. Again, that's on FNC. On the radio side, lineup today, Bill Malugin. He'll be here about an hour from now. He's reporting from the border some new details out of that horrible situation, the death toll rising among those illegal immigrants who were found basically baked alive, baked alive inside the back of a tractor trailer where they were abandoned by the drug cartels and smugglers. That story plus the larger issue of the border crisis, we will get into all of it with Bill Malugin coming up in our next hour. Later on that hour, Andy McCarthy will be here, one of the big legal analysts at Fox News, former federal prosecutor as well. He watched yesterday's January 6th committee hearing with great interest. I actually watched some of it last night, most of it last night. And Andy will give us his thoughts. Overall, he's written a piece saying it was very damaging to former President Trump. There is some pushback today against what the star witness alleged yesterday at that at that hearing in those proceedings. So we will break it all down down rather with Andy McCarthy coming up. And then in our final hour, the happy hour after 5 p.m. Eastern, Mark Thiessen, our colleague here at Fox, Washington Post columnist, also former presidential speechwriter. He will join us in studio to talk about the trials and travails of President Biden and his administration, plus whatever pops up on our radar. So Malugin, McCarthy, and Thiessen on the show here today. I would like to begin by addressing a tweet published by Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, a Democrat of Minnesota. And I do so with some reticence and trepidation because we have to make decisions as hosts on shows like this, what to respond to and what to use our valuable on-air time dealing with. And if we were to chase down every single thing that is said that's false, misleading, or just a lie by just the members of the squad, for example, we would do virtually nothing else in our 
three-hour program every day because it's just a torrent of misinformation from that crew. Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib are especially egregious violators, and often we ignore what they have to say. Just as often we ignore what some of the more radical or colorful backbenchers on the Republican side might have to say. It's good fodder for outrage, but it's not really worth our time. But in this case, I think it is worth our time because this is a tweet that has gone very viral. I'm looking down at my screen here. I see it's got more than 12,000 retweets, nearly 60,000 likes. This is getting shared widely, and it reflects a number of beliefs, almost pieces of quasi-religious dogma held on much of the left. And in the wake of the Dobbs decision and the overturning of Roe versus Wade, you have once again a very loud, vociferous, intensive effort to demand, quote-unquote, reforms to our system and particularly at the Supreme Court. Because the left tells us our norms and institutions must be protected unless they result in political outcomes that they dislike, in which case burn the institutions to the ground. That is a recurring theme with many so-called progressives and the squad, sort of the tip of the spear. But this is not really, unfortunately, frighteningly, that fringe of a view anymore on the left. We talked about yesterday the poll that shows only about one-third of Americans in favor of court packing, for example. It's a very extreme institution-raising idea. It's institutional arson. That number hasn't really changed over the last couple of years in polling, thank goodness. But the people who are most committed to it, most supportive of it, are people within the Democratic base. And they have huge megaphones and amplification on social media. They generally don't get fact-checked or warning labels or suspended for their misinformation because, I think, according to a lot of these big tech companies, lying for the cause is acceptable. So I think when they put out this stuff, to a certain extent, we have to pick our battles, but it is worth responding. So Ilhan Omar is saying that you need to kill the filibuster in the Senate and pass radical abortion legislation. You need to add other reforms to the Supreme Court, like term limits. And she's also calling for adding seats, expanding the court, i.e. court packing. And here's the way she's justifying it in this tweet today. She says, as was actually a few days ago, five justices, I'm quoting now, these are the claims by Ilhan Omar, five justices confirmed by a POTUS who lost the popular vote, four lied under oath, two credibly accused of sexual assault, one seat literally stolen, one's spouse implicated in a coup attempt. She writes, it is not enough to tell people to vote We need a comprehensive plan to fix this court. And then come all the ideas like court packing and busting up the Senate as well. So I would like to just quickly go through and debunk or at least address all of her points, which are factually wrong in nearly every count. She says five justices were confirmed by a president 
who lost the popular vote. First of all, presidents don't confirm justices. That's the Senate. Just civics 101, Congresswoman, but whatever. I know what you mean. She meant nominated by a president who lost the popular vote. Well, here's the issue with that. She is lumping into that category Justices Roberts and Alito, who were nominated by President George W. Bush. The thing is, they were both nominated after President Bush won the popular vote in 2004. Of course, the sixth conservative on this list, Clarence Thomas, he was nominated by George H.W. Bush, who won a landslide election in 1988. But what she's kind of doing here, Omar, is suggesting that George W. Bush is kind of an illegitimate president because he didn't win the popular vote the first time. But then he was reelected by the American people with a majority of the popular vote. And then he put these two justices on the court. But they, I guess, don't count because she's sticking with the 2000 result, not the 2004 more relevant result. Also, I'm pretty sure I've been told many times that questioning the legitimacy of election wins is a very bad thing, I guess, except when they do it. Right? That's, that's the difference. When they do it, it's fine. I would also just remind the congresswoman that we don't elect presidents with the popular vote in this country. That's not how we do it. That's not the system. It's not how campaigns are designed. The rules are the Electoral College. If you want to get rid of it, go about that constitutional work. It's going to be hard, very heavy lift, but go for it. Otherwise, you're basically just questioning legitimacy based on a made-up construct, based on a metric that is irrelevant to the presidency and the winning thereof. And if you want to just sort of cherry-pick certain facts, I will just point out to Ilhan Omar that two recently of the most popular justices on the left, Justice Breyer, who's just about to retire later this week, In fact, I believe it's tomorrow he's going to retire. He and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who passed away a few years ago, a lion of the left. They made movies about her. They tattoos of her. They were both appointed by President Bill Clinton, who won a lower share of the popular vote than Donald Trump ever did. A lower share of the popular vote. Does that make them and their jurisprudence What, illegitimate, less important, less binding? Of course not. And if they want to play stupid games, they can win their own stupid prizes with made-up standards like this. All right, number, number two on the list, she says four of these justices lied under oath. We dealt with this claim at some length here on the show this week. Summary, that's a lie. And here's why. The left is saying, well, because... Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and Barrett, for example, all said that Roe versus Wade was settled law and precedent. They were lying because then they came in and reversed it. And as we slowly explained for the people in the back, what those three justices were doing in their confirmation hearings was just sticking to the standard known as the Ginsburg rule pioneered by Ruth Bader Ginsburg in her confirmation hearings during the Clinton administration, where you get asked about a case And an area of precedent, you recap what the precedent is, you call it precedent, you often can say things like, yes, it's settled law, and then you refuse to hypothetically weigh in on what you might decide if you were on the high court if the issue came before the court. That is what they did. 
That is not a lie. It's not even close to a lie. But if Ilhan Omar thinks it's a lie, she should start by demanding the impeachment of Justices Kagan and Sotomayor, who did the exact same thing on gay marriage, on guns, and then did what the left wanted them to do. If the standard is these conservatives lied, then the liberals lied too. Ilhan Omar doesn't believe that because she's not an honest person and or she's an ignorant person. It's probably a little bit of both in this case. All right, two of them, she says, are, quote, credibly accused of sexual assault. False. None of the justices are credibly accused of sexual assault, unless I'm unaware of certain credible allegations against Elena Kagan or something. She's making reference to Clarence Thomas and Brett Kavanaugh, obviously. And this is a smear that is not based in evidence or reality. Clarence Thomas was attacked by Anita Hill, who made a bunch of lurid claims about him. It was brought to the forefront during his very contentious hearings. Joe Biden himself said in an interview in 1998 that he believed on that committee that Anita Hill was not telling the truth. Women in the office who worked with Hill and Clarence Thomas back in Thomas's previous role, the women in the office, none of them supported Anita Hill. All of them came out in support of Clarence Thomas at the hearing. FBI agents who were involved in the investigation promptly came out and called out what they said was Anita Hill lying about what she had told them. And at the time, by roughly a two-to-one margin, after the American people watched that circus, that character assassination attempt against Justice Thomas, by a two-to-one margin, with no gender gap, by the way, the American people believed him, not her. She did not have evidence. She was not credible. People did not believe her. And the FBI called her a liar. Then, of course, there's now Justice Kavanaugh, where we don't even have evidence that his accuser, all the allegations against him have been either debunked or have no evidence at all. There were really, ultimately, there was one serious allegation by Dr. Ford, and there's not even evidence that Kavanaugh and Ford ever met, let alone her story being true. And the FBI did look into it, and the only thing that they found is that her dear friend, who is her star witness, said that she was pressured to lie about Brett Kavanaugh. And that best friend or that dear friend of Dr. Ford ultimately concluded that her friend was lying and that she did not believe the story. Same with Dr. Ford's own father. Not one shred of actual evidence. So that's a slander and a smear against those two. Omar says that another seat was literally stolen. I think she's talking about Merrick Garland going into then Justice Gorsuch and the Republicans holding that seat open in 2016. She can take that up with Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden. That was their standard back in 1992 and 2007. The Republicans were playing by Ilhan's party's rules on that. It's not stolen. That's a delegitimization tactic. It's not true. And if she thinks that what the Republicans did was unforgivable, again, go back and talk to Biden and Schumer. This was their standard that they articulated. And the rules were followed. She might not like the rules, but they were followed. And finally, she says one of the spouses, Ginny Thomas, is implicated in a coup attempt. I'll just say this. Ilhan Omar, of all people, 
might not want to get into a guilt by association game, and she really might not want to talk about spouses. I'm just saying. Fact check of Congresswoman Ilhan Omar on these viral allegations. We have to fight back with the facts, and we will. On The Guy Benson Show, we'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you, it's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. We're back. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for being here. It was primary night in a number of states last night. I see that in Colorado, the Democrats pissed away, what, $4 million dollars? trying to boost a Republican they wanted to face in the general election for Senate, and Republican voters said, no, thank you. We're going to take this other person that we think has a better chance of beating the incumbent Democrat, Michael Bennett. That's millions of dollars down the drain in that meddling effort out in Colorado. But overall, if you look at the primaries last night, the New York Times is getting a little bit anxious because we were supposed to see a big, big surge in Democratic intensity and enthusiasm and anger over the abortion issue. But here's what the Times reports, quote, the Supreme Court decision ending the constitutional right to abortion was expected to motivate voters. Turnout in several states hosting primaries Tuesday, however, appeared to be typically sluggish. They go through a number of the states, including Illinois, where election officials said that they expected average turnout, which is generally what they got. There was actually elevated turnout on the Republican side in that state. The Times reports, quote, as of the start of the week, unaffiliated voters, independent swing voters, had returned more early ballots in Republican primaries than Democratic ones. A reversal from 2020 and 2018, election officials said. Then you add in the fact that we brought to you earlier in the week from the Associated Press, That nationwide, more than a million voters have changed their registration from D to R, especially in suburbs, from blue to red for this cycle. The signposts for a red wave remain intact, and it appears that that arc is still bending in that direction. 
So maybe the narrative isn't quite being reflected in reality. I have more things to say about that as soon as we come back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. We are back here together. Thanks for being a part of the radio family. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast is free every day after the show is over. That's GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. So something that I have been arguing and explaining really since the leaked draft of the Dobbs decision back in early May, and we had the first round of the conflagration over abortion politics, and now we're experiencing the second big round now that Dobbs came out last week. One of my consistent analyses when it comes to public opinion and political impact is that polling on this issue broadly is complicated. It is messy. It sometimes feels contradictory or even incoherent. And I would like to give you a few examples of that right now, because as I also predicted, there would be a massive amount of polling on abortion that the media was going to commission and put out there into the bloodstream. And they would really hype the outcomes that aligned with their beliefs. The media tends to be extremely favorable towards abortion and legalized abortion. And they might not really deal with or acknowledge some of the other data points that cut in the other direction. So there was an NPR poll came out, I think, yesterday or the day before, which showed a majority against overturning Roe versus Wade, a majority against the Dobbs decision. I saw CNN was uh, hyping this earlier on their air. And the NPR poll showed that there was a jump in Democratic enthusiasm among their voters, although, as we just told you, the New York Times reported last night, didn't really show up in the actual voting in Democratic primaries yesterday, as opposed to what this one poll supposedly showed. And then they also said that the NPR poll tracked a jump in the Democratic standing on the generic congressional ballot. Which party would you rather have control Congress? Democrats were suddenly out to a seven-point lead. Compared to April, they said, when Republicans had a three-point lead, they just sort of eluded or elided the May poll, which showed Democrats plus five, which is a huge outlier, by the way, compared to most other polling. And there was another survey that came out yesterday. I think it was Politico. That showed the Democrats had gained a two-point bump on the generic ballot. And people are pointing, here's another one with the Democrats getting that bounce because of abortion and Roe versus Wade and a backlash is underway. So a lot of attention on that, less attention on the New York Times story saying, well, hang on, this enthusiasm didn't really manifest in actual voter turnout. 
And today there's a new national poll from YouGov, which shows the Republicans gaining a point on the congressional ballot over their last poll. So the Republicans now are up by five points in the YouGov poll over the Democrats on the 2022 ballot, plus one in the Republican direction. I wonder if you will see that poll talked about a lot in certain quarters, or is that against the narrative and so it sort of gets tucked away? It's a data point. It contradicts some of the other ones that they're excited about. And then there's this survey that I want to dig into just a little bit from Monmouth. This was a national poll, and you'll see the top line reported about the Monmouth poll, which is by roughly a familiar 60-40 margin, the public is against overturning Roe, against the Dobbs decision. So 60% against, 40% roughly in favor. But here's what's interesting. Because as we've been saying now for a while, part of the reason that overturning Roe is as unpopular as it is, is because a lot of Americans have been led to believe over and over again that Roe being reversed equals a nationwide ban on abortion, which is not true. So you might have people who say, oh, yeah, I'm in favor of these limitations or those limitations. I just don't want all the abortions banned everywhere. They think that's what Roe going away means. That is untrue. And there's been a misinformation campaign from the abortion lobby, the Democratic Party, and, yes, the press on this front for many years. And we told you yesterday about a New York Times story that repeated the lie again just this week. Now, when Monmouth then asks, OK, Roe is now overturned. Now what? They gave people three options. Number one, Congress would pass a law allowing abortion. So a nationwide pro-choice bill of some sort. Option two, abortion laws get left up to the states. Option three, Congress imposes a national ban on abortion. OK. What are the results here? And I hope you're following. This is the same poll that 60-40 is the split against overturning Roe. Same poll. 46% of Americans would like to see a legalized abortion bill passed by Congress. So less than half of the country would like to see that. 44%, basically a tie, would like to see the abortion decisions left up to the states, which is what the Dobbs decision does. And then 7% want a national ban. And as a pro-lifer, I'm not even arguing for a national ban. I think this is an extraordinary outcome because you'll see like a 20-point gap on the row question. Oh, no, we don't want that. We don't want that to happen. We're, we're upset that the Supreme Court has overturned Roe versus Wade. Okay, what would you like to see? A majority... In response to that, say, well, it should be left up to the states or it should be banned by Congress. That majority is, in fact, endorsing or going further than what the justices have done in Dobbs. So 60 percent of the country will tell a pollster I'm in favor of Roe versus Wade. And then a majority of Americans will say, well, let's leave it up to the states or pass a national abortion ban. That is one of these contradictions that I'm talking about where people, obviously, many of them have deep-seated misimpressions of what Roe versus Wade did and what the Dobbs decision does.
Now, of course, within the 46 percent less than half who want to see abortion legalized by Congress nationwide, there is no drill down on what that law would look like. But they did ask, at what point does the life of a, quote, unborn fetus or the rights of an unborn fetus start to supersede the rights of the mother? And it's actually, I think, a question asked very strangely. It's a weird way to frame it by Quinnipiac, but that's the way, or excuse me, this is Monmouth. That's the way that they decide to ask the question. And unsurprisingly, in the second trimester, the rights of the unborn fetus, is what they call it, takes the lead in that polling question. Then in the third trimester, it becomes lopsided. We've seen this in other polling where if you ask people, what about a a six-week ban when the heartbeat is detected or a 12-week ban after the first trimester, which is what they largely have across Europe, or a 15-week ban, which is the Mississippi law in question here, the law in Florida, the law being proposed in Virginia, those ideas, those limitations have majority support. And all of those limitations that I just mentioned would not have been allowed under the Roe decision. So this is exactly what I'm talking about when I say there are cross currents and there are complexities and it's messy. You can find these polls that show the Democrats benefiting from what's happened. And then here's another poll showing Republicans growing their lead. Then you ask people about the rogue question, then ask a slightly different question, and you get extremely different results, belying, I think, a lot of misunderstanding about what these Supreme Court precedents actually meant and did in real life, as opposed to in the imagination of the American people, as I think seeded with falsehoods by a lot of people for a very long time. They asked people, would you be bothered a lot if abortion were banned nationwide? 57% say yes. So fewer than who oppose overturning Roe would be bothered by a nationwide ban, which Republicans aren't even proposing. I think you might see something like a congressional bill on 15 weeks or something like that, which has majority support. That's not a nationwide ban. But 57% say they would be bothered a lot by that. What about in the states? If some states did that? Now you're down to 46 percent say they would be bothered a lot. People are much more open to states making decisions at the state level based on those constituencies. And roughly 70 percent of Americans say that regardless, this would not affect themselves or their families. Only 13 percent say it would impact them a great deal. Now, I'm not arguing that abortion is not an important question. I'm not trying to minimize the significance of that issue to people Uh, Because a poll says that only 13 percent say it's a major uh, issue that would impact them. I am saying if you're trying to do a political analysis about the outcome of this and how it might play on the elections months from now, you compare that 13 percent versus the number of Americans, the percentage of Americans who are directly impacted every day by, I don't know, gas prices, inflation on everything. I mean, you're up in the 80 percent range or higher for that. There is a disparate impact on these issues, which is why I think the little trajectory that we saw back in early May is something that we are probably going to see, at least to some extent, now that the Dobbs decision has come out. 
Oh, and by the way, one other thought from the Monmouth poll that I think is interesting. A majority of Americans in that survey believe that the Supreme Court is going to come after other rights next, like gay marriage and presumably birth control or contraception, because that's another thing that the Democrats are saying a lot. Speaker Pelosi's out there talking about it. I know all these gay rights organizations are just filling their social media with this, what I believe to be fear mongering about what the court's going to do next. And they're citing what Clarence Thomas wrote in his lone concurrence as like, uh, here's the here's the roadmap I have explained at length on this show and in my townhall.com writings, which you can go look up, why I don't think that's the case. I'm not 100 percent confident. I can't be. But I am quite confident that I'm right and this analysis is sound. And I do wonder if as the weeks, months and years pass and people wake up and look around and say, oh, wait, contraception hasn't been touched at all by the Supreme Court. Birth control has not been suddenly ripped away. Same sex marriages have not been invalidated and dissolved across the country and declared uh, unconstitutional or, or the right has gone away. That hasn't happened. Oh, interracial marriage has not gotten uh, you know, tossed out or whatever. The, the Supreme Court hasn't meddled on that front. You sort of start to wonder if people look around and recognize the parade of horribles that were anticipated. Oh, Plan B is going to get banned. If that doesn't happen, do people say, sort of like on the lies in Georgia about voter suppression, and then voter participation goes up after the so-called suppression, including among the groups that we were told would be suppressed, then people might start to wonder, gosh, maybe I've been lied to. Maybe there's been a bunch of hysterical exaggeration, and maybe these people actually weren't telling me, leveling with me based on reality. Maybe they were trying to wind me up and get me upset in order to stir fear. I think that that is... In all likelihood, something, perhaps a light bulb that will go on for some Americans over a period of time, because I think the backlash rhetoric and predictions that the Democrats and the left are attempting, they're going too far. It's going to blow up in their faces again. And speaking of their overreach, I have a few more points to make, including some misinformation coming out of South Carolina, something that the White House has now advised that I think is going to upset a lot of parents. We will get to all of that coming up right after this quick break. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. I tweeted about this earlier. So in South Carolina, there's a governor's race. And Joe Cunningham, who's a former congressman, he's the Democrat, running against the incumbent Republican, uh, the governor, McMaster. And the Democrat is attacking McMaster on abortion. And there's a law in South Carolina, and Cunningham doesn't like it, and he's been out there attacking it. The problem is he's lying about it. He said, quote, in Henry McMaster, South Carolina, a woman's rapist would serve less time in prison than she would for having an abortion. Are you kidding me, he asked. He added, McMaster's position on this is to give less time, prison time, to the rapist than to the woman who decided to terminate the pregnancy. Now, that's a potent attack line, except it is just false. It is a lie. You can agree or disagree with South Carolina's abortion law, 
right? You can be fully in favor of it, partially in favor of it, which sort of I am, totally against it. What we should be able to do is have that conversation without just lying about it. Because as the law specifically says, a pregnant woman on whom an abortion is performed or induced in violation of this article, the law, may not be criminally prosecuted. And it says later that she is not subject to civil or criminal penalty based on the abortion. So the Democrats out there saying the Republicans want to throw women in prison if they have abortions and they'll be in prison longer than people who might have raped them. Absolutely factually wrong. I'm sure the fact checkers will get right on that. If the Democrats feel like they can win on the issue and the American people are with them or the people of South Carolina in this case are with them, then make that case on the merits. Don't lie about what's actually in the law. And with Republicans nationally, they don't have to lie. Conservatives, we don't have to lie about what the Democrats are proposing in Congress. They've already proposed it. They've already voted on it. And every single one of them except for two, one senator, one member of Congress uh, of the House, all of the other Democrats on Capitol Hill voted in favor of nine-month abortion on demand until the moment of birth for any reason paid for by tax dollars. That's their position, which polling suggests is about a 17 to 19 percent position in the country. Even most pro-choice people reject it. That's what the Democrats are proposing. The White House has amplified a resource. They have encouraged people to go to a website that I'm not going to repeat, but this is what the White House has directed people to in the aftermath of Dobbs. Philip Wegman at Real Clear Politics, he points out that this website, highlighted by the White House, quote, includes information for minors, including children 15 or younger, on how they can bypass parental notification laws. So the White House, I guess, is sending people off to a website to help a 14-year-old daughter go sneak off and have an abortion without her parents even knowing. That is crazy, just like the nine-month abortion thing is. If the Democrats were just moderately pro-choice and not crazy, I think they might have more of an advantage here. They don't because they are way out there on the edge. And Pelosi won't even condemn the violence against pro-lifers for crying out loud. So if I understand this, the hard left believes that 14-year-old high school students should be able to go get an abortion without their parents' knowledge and go to a taxpayer-funded drag show at their school but not see the high school football coach praying on the field. Okay, another hour coming up. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Come on in. It's another hour, a brand new one here on The Guy Benson Show, our middle hour of three on this Wednesday. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast is free every day. Our Twitter and Instagram handle is the same, at Guy Benson Show. And we will be on special report tonight on the panel with Brett Baer on Fox News Channel around 745 Eastern. See you there. Fox News Alert. 
The Dow ending the day in the green today, up 82 points, closing out just a hair above 31,000 at 31,029. Well, yesterday we opened this program by talking about the tragedy in Texas tied into the border crisis and the death of dozens of illegal immigrants. That death toll continues to tick up very sadly. And just a few moments ago, we caught up with our colleague Bill Malugin, national correspondent at Fox News. He is all over every issue related to the border. We talked about what has been discovered down there in the last few days and then the wider crisis as well. Here's my conversation with Bill. Bill, it's good to have you back. Welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Guy. An absolutely horrible story that we covered yesterday out of San Antonio. The death toll today rising now to 53 people. Yesterday I saw it was 50, then it became 51. Now it's 53. Human beings who essentially baked in the back of a tractor trailer in Texas, having been smuggled across the border. Tell us the details on this story. What are you hearing from your sources on the ground? Well, first off, you mentioned it, you know, baking today. It, it, this is one of the worst ways imaginable that somebody could die. Um, we're getting into some of the peak heat out there in South Texas right now. And these people were trapped inside of that big rig trailer, that metal truck, literally, as you said, baking alive. And um, the, the, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's, it's just horrible. It's slow. Um, and, you know, there are these reports that some of the cartel smugglers actually put steak seasoning on them to mask the smell of some of the bodies before they left. Just absolutely oh horrific. God. And, it, and, and, and it just goes to show that these smugglers have absolutely zero regard for human life. They never do. It's just it's it's money to them. It's 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 human cargo. And, and that's it. And this isn't I know this is getting a lot of media attention now because of the numbers of a, a single event like this, but people have been dying in these human smuggling events almost weekly for o- over a year now. And, and, you know, we've been covering this just this morning. Somebody, a migrant died in the Rio Grande Valley, human smuggler pursuit. They rolled over. He got ejected. He died. This isn't new. The, the scope of this one is obviously the worst in history because there are so many dead people. But human smuggling events take place at the border every single day multiple times a day. And what happened here is once these uh, illegal immigrants came across the border, they're usually put up in stash houses by the cartels. Then once enough of them have crossed and paid, they will get put into a truck like this or some sort of container or, you know, we've seen them in these gravel trailers before, although the the cartels will try to get creative. And um, they'll then promise to take them deeper into the United States. And we don't know why this truck was abandoned. We don't know if maybe they thought law enforcement were onto them or, or what the deal was. But at some point, these smugglers just decided to leave this big rig trailer Uh, essentially off a small little skinny road in the middle of nowhere in the brutal heat, and they were locked inside, and Mm. 53 are now dead so far, literally baked baked alive. Yeah, just this agonizing death. It is horrific to hear and read about some of these details. I cannot imagine having to witness it and investigate what happened here. There has been a big political fight over this, Bill. As you know, Governor Abbott laying these deaths directly at the doorstep of the White House. And President Biden, the White House clapping back and objecting to that. And I sort of try to have a nuanced view of this, which is I don't hold Joe Biden or Alejandro Mayorkas 
or the administration directly responsible for these deaths. I don't say that they have blood on their hands. They killed these people. But I also don't absolve them of moral culpability because it is basically undeniable that the policies of this administration have led to record-shattering increases in illegal immigration, emboldening and enriching the cartels and these smugglers. The incentive is more powerful than ever. The magnet is as strong as ever. And when that's the policy that you have erected, when that is your policy, then when there are horrible externalities that result from those incentives, people responding to those incentives, then you have something to do. Your fingerprints, at least partially, are on those tragedies and those bad things that result. Because if fewer people were coming, because they were being discouraged to come, not just with words but with policy, there would be less likelihood of this type of thing happening. The likelier it is, the more of it you're going to get. And I can't just say that the White House gets to skate on this either. I wonder what you think, without getting into editorial, because I know you're on the news side, you just report on this stuff. What do you make as someone who watches this day in and day out of now a little bit of this political food fight that's broken out? Well, look, objectively speaking, I'm on the same page as you are. You can't blame Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or Mayorkas directly for the deaths of these. They did not force these cartel members to pick them up and leave them off the side of the road. However, as you mentioned, it is undeniable that their policies have introduced what we call pull factors, reasons why migrants are coming to the U.S. in historical, historical numbers. They are completely reprioritizing what ICE does, telling people that just being in the country illegally uh, is no longer grounds for being deported. They stopped building the wall. They tried to get rid of Remain in Mexico. They're not removing any children from the country. They are mass releasing hundreds of migrants every single day. Migrants know under this administration, if they can just get into the U.S. and step foot on U.S. soil, there is a very good chance they will be released into the country. That is a pull factor. That is directly a result of Biden administration policies. The migrants want to come right now. They want to get into the United States and the cartels know that and they take advantage of that and they are making yep. an ungodly amount of money right now. They are in Well, control. they told us it was 100 million a week. 100 million dollars yeah. a week to the cartels just in the human trafficking and smuggling area of their portfolio. And to the point that you made earlier, Bill, these are some of the most ruthless, evil people in the Western Hemisphere who do not care about human life at all. And if 53 people get roasted alive in a truck, that's just sort of collateral damage to them. And empowering those people and filling their pockets even further as a result of these policies, that is – I'm sorry, that is a significant factor as we analyze what's happened here. It is. And I can tell you, the cartel guys, they don't care. These these were paying customers. They already paid their money. They don't care if they're dead or not. They got they got their thousands of dollars from each person. They only care if they're going to get arrested or if their ring's going to get busted. And I know HSI and ICE and all the federal authorities are working on that. A couple of arrests have been made. But these these smugglers have never cared about what happens to their human cargo. All they care about is that the cargo keeps coming. And 
the way it works right now is the U.S. government essentially, in some cases, finishes the final leg of human smuggling for the cartels, especially when it comes to these unaccompanied children. That's why we see these images of little kids being dropped over the border wall or just abandoned on the side of the river, because they know the U.S. is going to take them in and reunite them with families or sponsors. The cartels are able to advertise, hey, give us your kid. Pay us some money. We'll get them to the U.S., and then they will be reunited with whoever you want them to be. Now, uh, you know, people will say, well, what's the U.S. supposed to do? Just throw the kids back into Mexico? No, of course not. But they know that the cartels are able to advertise off the current policy. And it's, I mean, we had more than 14,000 unaccompanied children show up at the border last month. Well, yeah, and that that goes to the pull factor notion that you were just mentioning. You can never stop everything. There will always be people trying to come to this country illegally because this is a great country where people want to come. But there are things that you can do to mitigate the problem, to minimize the problem and make it much easier to handle the people who do come as opposed to an unwieldy, unmanageable, overwhelming crush. You can actually deal with it in a way that is sensible and somewhat organized. You can't do that when the problem is this big and the crisis is this raging where people don't have the wherewithal, the manpower, the authority to do nearly enough about it to bring things under control. And on that point, Bill, we played the clip yesterday here on the show. Corrine Jean-Pierre, who speaks for the president, of course, as the press secretary at the White House, she asserted, she was asked about this, she asserted in a gaggle with journalists, that the border is closed. She said that's the bottom line. The border is closed. I know you and I talk about this at least once a month, but just to refresh our memories, looking at last month alone, it is simply a lie to say that the border is closed. Is it not? It's it's a falsehood of the biggest magnitude, uh, and I roll my eyes every time I hear it. If the border is closed, why have there been more than 445,000 known gotaways just since October? Why have there been more than 200,000 people crossing illegally every month for the past several? Here's one stat that really jumps out to me, Guy. Think of it this way. Since the year 2000, there had only been one single month where there were more than 200,000 illegal crossings in the U.S. Under Joe Biden, it's already happened five times. So in the previous 20 years, it happened one time. Joe Biden takes office. It's now happened five times in about a year and a half. The border is not closed. There are thousands of gotaways coming through every single day, and those are only the ones we know about. The cartels run the border in certain areas. We have fewer agents than ever physically patrolling the front lines because so many of them are pulled off to do paperwork and processing with these massive family groups that come over. And again, the cartels know this. You and I have talked about this dozens of times it feels like now where the cartels will push over these big family groups knowing the border patrol is going to have to respond in force and do all the paperwork and then once they're busy they're going to push their other people across the criminals the runners who don't want to be caught and the border is not closed it is it is an absolute lie to say that and i would love for her to have to address if it's closed then why have there been more than eight hundred thousand gotaways essentially since they took office Bill Malugin, last topic here, and it's related. We have about a minute and a half left. You're doing some reporting about a new facility in North Carolina to aid in some of the processing, I believe, mostly of children. Fill us in on some of those details. Yeah, so um, uh, the Biden administration very quietly signed a five-year lease 
with an abandoned school in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina. It's called the American Hebrew Academy. It's a former boarding school. Very, very nice campus. Very upscale, sprawling. Honestly, looks like a, a college campus. It's gorgeous. Um, HHS quietly signed a, uh, a five-year lease with them to use that property uh, to house unaccompanied migrant children, basically children uh, who are waiting to be reunited with family or sponsors here in the U.S. The government has to take custody of them and take care of them, so that's what this property is going to be used for. Um, HHS is hiring up to 800 staff members to work at this facility. Kids are supposed to start coming in as soon as this weekend. And what's interesting about this guy is there were rumors that this was going to happen in May of last year, that this facility was going to be used for, for migrant children. And North Carolina GOP lawmakers pressed Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra on the stand in a congressional hearing and directly asked him, are you going to send migrant children to uh, North Carolina? Can you confirm these reports? And Javier Becerra directly said, no, we are not. We have no plans to bring oh. migrant children to North Carolina. Well, what happened now? That's exactly what they're doing. And those congressional, those Republicans in North Carolina are not happy about it. They're accusing him of completely contradicting his own testimony and essentially blindsiding their communities. Time for another hearing, it sounds like, and maybe some new spin and prevarication, because that's what we get a lot from this crew, particularly on this issue. Bill Malugin, national correspondent here at Fox News, based in L.A., but spends a lot of his time down at the border, as you've gathered. Bill, my friend, as always, keep up the good work, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Guy. Much appreciated. Talk to you soon. Stepping aside, coming right back, it's The Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. I was on Shannon Bream's show last night, and because it was summer and after midnight, I decided to break out a jacket that I hadn't worn in years. Bright blue, like a baby blue jacket. I actually think it looked pretty good on the air. Wyatt clipped it. I was worried. I think it looked pretty good. One of the points that I made on Fox News at night, we were talking about inflation and the cost of things. I remembered a tweet from the White House last year right around this time. It was July 1st, 2021. You might remember this because they got a lot of flack for it. This is from the official White House Twitter account. They said, planning a cookout this year? Catch up on the news. According to the Farm Bureau, the cost of a 4th of July barbecue is down from last year. Hot dog. The Biden economic plan is working, and that's something we can all relish. So you got all the cringe. Uh, it just you know plays on words involving barbecue items. And then they were boasting that the cost of the 4th of July barbecue on average in 2021 was down 16 cents, they said, from last year. And they decide to really highlight this as a big achievement for President Biden. It reminds me of when the DCCC, I think it was, put out that tweet thanking Biden for gas prices going down like two cents for two days. And they had a totally hilarious graph that made it look like a massive reduction because of the X and Y accesses that they use. And then you just look at what's happened ever since. What was happening for many months before and has happened ever since it's just been up, up and away. So these tweets turn into self-owns. 
when you really don't have something really truly to brag about or boast about on substance in a way that people will say, oh, wow, that's meaningful to me, it might be the best practice to just say nothing as opposed to say, thank you, President Biden, for whatever, two, two cents reduction per gallon of gas when it was on its way up to now $5 on average, roughly, per gallon. Similarly, last year, if you're like, oh, look, the cost of the cookout is going to be 16 cents lower this year. Let's do a tweet about that. Let's put a little graphic together. In fact, they, they made a GIF to celebrate this achievement. Let's throw in some uh, some dad jokes into the tweet and talk about how the Biden economic plan is working. Well, how's that going? It's like one of those online memes, how it started, how it's going. How it started a year ago was them saying, uh, you're going to save 16 cents. You're welcome, America. Well, this year, the same Farm Bureau looked at it and costs are up 17 percent. There's a 16 cent reduction, they said last year, a 17 percent increase on average this year. There's a small handful of items that I saw would be down a little bit. Strawberries, I think I read. Sliced cheese. Aside from that, especially your meats. Up and up and up. So I wonder if they'll tweet about that. They can have a uh, self-congratulatory tweet that it's not worse. Or just, you know, have a, a Photoshop of Vladimir Putin raiding barbecues. I don't know. But it's not going well, which is why Joe Biden's approval is at a record low as of today in the Real Clear Politics average. Andy McCarthy coming up next. We're changing people's lives. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Just past halftime on today's edition. Also halfway through the week on the broadcast. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is always free. Joining us once again is Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor, author of multiple best-selling books. You can follow him, as I do, on Twitter at Andrew C. McCarthy. Andy, welcome back to the program. Guy, always a pleasure. I did not watch it live yesterday. I was picking up bits and pieces of it through social media. The January 6th committee hearings with this star testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson. I did go back last evening to watch it, and I took it all in. I made some notes mentally of what I thought was significant, what might be questionable. I know you were watching it as it played out, and you had a very, I would say, visceral reaction to it, saying that it was devastating for Trump and that this whole controversy, this whole issue, will not be the same moving forward after yesterday's hearing. If you could just explain to our audience what makes you feel that way, what was different about this versus anything else that we've seen or heard? Well, the big gap guy in, for example, the impeachment, uh, I I refer to it as the non-investigation that they did in connection with the impeachment following the Capitol riot, was, as many of us said at the time, what was Trump doing during the critical moments, and uh, not just in the days before January 6th, but the hours uh, leading up to and then during the riot. So this peeled the curtain back on that as it had never been done before. 
with respect to or, or by a witness who had direct firsthand knowledge of most of it. And to the extent that she related, I know there's controversy about some of the things she related that she didn't have firsthand knowledge of. Um, I, I, I tend to think those were less important and she's not lying. She she was very forthright in the idea that uh, these were things that were related to her, not that she actually saw, for example, the altercation in uh, in the car and so forth. But right. I, I, really I want to get to that. I want to get to that. Yeah, but but I, before we do that, I just want to let you finish your point on what you think matters more. Well, I think, I, you know, a lot of the talk about, well, this has been a sideshow, for example, like incitement and uh, all that uh, stuff that you can have an academic discussion about. Um, to my mind, what it comes down to with, with Trump is, and the way the case got advanced yesterday, is we now know that just you know moments before he took the podium in the ellipse, he was undoubtedly informed that there was a heavily armed mob there. He, it was clear to him, it was made clear to him that the, this was not just a, a raucous crowd, that these people were, many of them were armed. And his reaction was that they not only should be allowed in, that is, he didn't want the magnetometers. He made a point of saying that they're not a threat to me, meaning, you know, implicitly they're a threat to somebody, but not to right, me. Right, they're not here for me. And, right. And, and he said they're going to listen to me, and then they're going to go down to the Capitol. And he actually wanted to leave them down there. So I, I think the, you know, the case that he may have aided and abetted the uh, – forcible intimidation of Congress, which is a which is a federal statute that hasn't gotten much play, but I think it's a very relevant one, uh, it really comes into play. And I think it makes the obstruction case stronger because it's not dependent on some abstruse, you know, it's not dependent on trying to figure out, was Eastman's theory so frivolous that it crosses the line into fraud? If you're intentionally moving, aiding and abetting an armed mob to Congress with the intention of intimidating them through the threat of force into the way they conduct a constitutionally required proceeding, that to me makes it a much more strong obstruction case. I want to get to some of the pushback and some of the inconsistencies or contradictions that people are talking about. But one other thing that we heard and saw at the very end of yesterday's hearing, which was sort of a surprise added tacked on hearing, they were we thought adjourned until next month, and they said, never mind, we have this witness, more information, everyone tune in. And it was pretty explosive and definitely compelling to watch. Whether people want to believe all of it is a separate question. But Liz Cheney, at the very end of the proceeding yesterday, said that they have, and she sort of teased a few text messages and, I guess, personal exchanges in which it appears that someone in Trump world might have been or someone's might have been engaging in conduct that could be construed as witness tampering against folks that were going to testify under oath before the committee. We didn't see who was doing the potential tampering. We didn't see who they were targeting. Those identities were not revealed in this little preview that we got. I just wonder what you make of that. Do we need to know who these people are? Does that look to you like witness tampering that could be criminal? Are people reading too much into it? I'm just interested in your legal perspective. Um, I hate to be critical of Liz Cheney because I think she did a really – I like her personally, and I think she did a very good job with this witness yesterday. But that said, I'm really um, – I, I don't want to hear another thing from this committee characterizing things this thing happened. 
put a witness on the stand and get sworn testimony about it. Um, what you know, this is a very partisan committee, and when they make statements like that, um, we already have the problem that they're they're presenting us evidence rather than giving us a hearing where evidence gets probed by cross examination and the like. So I think it's really unbecoming for the committee to float out there that you know there might be serious crimes being committed, but not give us any evidence of that. And I also think it's really tremendously unbecoming for Liz to continue to say that, you know, this or that person uh, took the fifth or hid behind the Fifth Amendment rather than testify to the committee. If you pulled that kind of nonsense in a federal court, there would be a mistrial. And if you were a lawyer who did it, everybody knows that that's improper. If you were a lawyer who did that, you would be held in contempt and there'd be sanctions. So, I, you know, put on the evidence that you have. When we have a, f a criminal trial, um, you know, for 20 years, I managed to get through tr criminal trials. I never got to interview the main witness during an investigation because you're not allowed to do that. If there was attorney-client privilege, I had to respect that. If there was priest-penitent privilege, I had to respect that. I didn't get to go out in front of the jury and say, can you imagine this person was too afraid and is hiding behind the Fifth Amendment and won't talk to me? Uh, you know, I mean, that's, that, that's ridiculous. Put on the evidence. And you might say that's a PR move, and you can find it unseemly from a legal perspective. But this brings me to the point of PR, because I think that there are some public relations problems that they're running into from yesterday because this young woman, Cassidy Hutchinson, first of all, I'll just say this. I know some people are trying to say, oh, she was just this very low-level aide who didn't have any juice and didn't really have access. That is belied by the location of her desk in the West Wing. Low-level aides are not in the West Wing generally. They're over in the EEOB. They are certainly not right outside the door of the chief of staff in the thick of everything. This was someone who was significant. Trump putting out a statement on Truth Social being like, oh, she's a nobody. I don't believe that. And I think that her literal position there speaks for itself. I'm also not here to call her a liar. She didn't strike me as a liar. I've seen a number of people from within the Trump administration who have been on social media going to bat for her saying that she is a trustworthy, honest person. They believe her. All that being said... There were a couple of splashy things that were said by her. One of them that got a lot of attention was this whole episode in the car, the presidential limo, in this case an SUV. You referenced it, Andy, a few minutes ago. Here's what she said in cut 20, got a lot of attention. Listen. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president. Take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. And Mr. when Mr. Renato had recounted the story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. All right, so we're getting this portrait of a deranged president wanting to go to the Capitol to join, basically, the riot or lead his people there. Secret Service wouldn't take him, so he was lunging at the steering wheel. The president was, I guess, from the back seat is the allegation, and then lunged at the neck of one of the Secret Service officers who was saying no. Now, that obviously is a very striking image. People were sharing it far and wide, gasping at what she was saying. There was also another thing that she said that she had written a handwritten note 
And now we're learning that there is someone else in the administration who says, actually, no, I wrote that note, and I've testified under oath already to the committee to that effect. Apparently, the committee has spoken to these Secret Service agents. They are now talking, or sources close to them are talking to the media, saying we would be happy to come back and testify under oath again that this whole episode in the car with the steering wheel and the neck and all of that did not happen. I understand your point, Andy, that Ms. Hutchinson was not claiming to have witnessed this personally, and she's being contradicted by these other sources, but she is relaying something that she was told under oath in this serious way, and it was widely reported, got tons of attention, and I think there's serious doubts about whether either of those particular details are true. So I guess my question for you is, number one, doesn't that matter for her credibility? If she's getting stuff wrong or making the judgment to recapitulate stories that she doesn't know to be true, that apparently, according to the people involved, are not true, doesn't that have some effect on her credibility, more broadly speaking, and some of the other things that she says that she saw? Number one and number two, isn't this a big unforced error by the committee itself if they've spoken to these other involved people who are now whispering to reporters and saying, no, that's not what happened It seems like the committee should have known that they had the ability to vet some of these claims before they trotted them out on national television, knowing full well that there are a lot of people who want to discredit Cassidy Hutchinson, and this is an opening. It seems like this was a a significant blunder by the committee members and the committee staff, at least from where I sit. I just want to get your reaction to those two questions. Well, I think, Guy, on on Hutchinson – whether how much it shakes her credibility if she got it wrong, which we don't know, is um, why did she get it wrong? So if she got it wrong because she misremembered what she was told, then that cast out on a lot of aspects of her testimony, certainly on things she was told as opposed to what she saw. On the other hand, if she got it wrong because what she was told was wrong – then that's a whole different set of problems. In other words, she's accurately mm-hmm. relating what she was told, but what she was told was wrong. And the reason I, I point that out is her testimony is she was told this by Tony Ornato, who was the uh, security operations chief at the White House, but with or, with agent um, – uh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the name – but they, with the agent, Bobby, who she was talking about, was standing right there, the guy who was uh, supposedly had this – skirmish with the with Trump was standing with Arnado and would presumably have corrected anything that Arnado said that was wrong uh, if he got details wrong. Angle is the name, Bobby Angle. Um, so, you know, it, but apparently it, they're willing out- to testify that this is not what happened. And I guess my point would be, let's hear from them. And the committee has heard from them if they're going to yes. put Cassidy Hutchinson up in front of the country on national television to say something. And these guys have spoken and it's on video somewhere. I think the country has the right to see kind of the cross-examination or them to come out and say what they personally were involved with or not, because this should be about gathering the facts, whether they are helpful or harmful for Trump. If there are some things that aren't true, that because they're not true would make Trump's conduct look less bad, that would still be a material fact. And we should get that. We shouldn't have that you know, on the cutting room floor because it doesn't cover the narrative. If the if the committee really wants to do the job of bringing the entire full picture accurately to the American people. Guy, I agree with all that, and I'm going to repeat what I said in my column about this yesterday. The committee evidently interviewed in a deposition angle 
before they decided to publicly put on the testimony from Hutchinson. I assume that if they were aware that that Engel gave a version of events that contradicted Hutchinson's, they would not have presented that. If it turns out that they had information that was contradictory of Hutchinson's testimony and they neither publicized that testimony nor confronted her with it when she was under oath, then that's a big problem for the committee. It's, I think, much more of a problem for the committee than it is for Hutchinson. But I'm not going to believe that happened until I see it. Yeah, and I think that we need to see it. We need to hear from all these people involved. I know this is one snippet out of it, and I just I get frustrated, though, Andy, with this argument from the media breathlessly saying, oh, my gosh, Trump is lunging at people's necks and assaulting officers and trying to grab the steering wheel. And then it comes out, well, maybe that wasn't true and maybe she heard the wrong thing and the people who were there said, no, that that didn't happen or are purportedly willing to testify as much under oath. It's like, well, then they sort of backtrack a lot of people in the press saying, well, that's not really the most important thing that happened yesterday. You can't hype something up breathlessly. And then if it starts to fall apart, say, well, that doesn't really matter. Look at these other things instead. I think that creates more doubts in a lot of people's minds about whether people are playing games and being honest. You are not doing that, to be clear. But a lot of people in the media, it just seems like there's a moving target and moving goalposts a lot of the time. And on the other side of this thing, you've got some Trump supporters and Trump loyalists saying if they can poke one or two holes in some of the hearsay testimony from this woman, then the whole thing, like the entire proceeding of the January 6th committee, is completely discredited because these were lies. I think that is a massive overstating and trying to minimize everything else that's been presented. It just seems like there's, I don't know, a lot of hackery going on, Andy. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised because it's Washington and it's politics. Yeah, that's right, Guy. But, you know, you make good points, and and what I would say about all that is what a judge tells a jury in every single trial— is that the most important asset that you bring besides your life experience is your common sense. That's what you bring to the equation. And I think in the common sense of most people is most people, you know, most witnesses don't get everything right and they don't get everything wrong. And when there's not an obvious motivation for them to be lying, they're probably not. But that doesn't mean there won't be discrepancies. And, you know, that's life. We have to work all that out. Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. His most recent book, Ball of Collusion. Andy, thank you as always. Thanks, Guy. Right back after this on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. I'm not sure if you've seen the footage, which is chilling, of the Russians bombing a shopping mall in Ukraine, far from the front lines, killing innocent people, targeting innocent civilians as they have over and over again as that war continues. And we'll get an update on that war in the coming days because there are some signs of a stalemate in the east. There are some reports that the Russians might be running out of ammunition, which would be a positive development. I will also bring you this relatedly. NATO has now officially and formally invited Sweden and Finland to become member nations in the wake of Russia's war in Ukraine. The Swedes and the Finns were not terribly interested. Their population's not that interested in joining NATO before the invasion. And then Putin's decision changed that calculus real fast. And so they asked to join. NATO has now extended that invitation. 
The Turkish government had been objecting. They have finally dropped that objection. And so that process is moving forward. I would say another huge strategic miscalculation by Vladimir Putin, who might now stand to have more NATO countries at or near his border, which was the ostensible reason that he was going into Ukraine in the first place. That development happening today during a summit in Madrid, Spain. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. Mark Thiessen will join us when we return. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the Happy Hour on the Guy Benson Show. On this Wednesday, thank you for tuning in. I'm Guy Benson, your host, GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website here at the program. The podcast is always free of charge. GuyBensonShow.com. All of your program needs are right there. You can also follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. I'm on special report tonight on the panel with Brett Bayer and that whole team. It'll be right around 645 Eastern time on Fox News Channel, so we will see you there coming up pretty shortly. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious. Our friends over there expanding. I'm seeing them really growing. I'm seeing them all over social media, like in the wild, which is pretty cool. TheLongDrink.com is their website, TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21-plus only, please. With us now here in studio in Washington, D.C., the Tony Snow Studios, is Mark Thiessen, columnist at the Washington Post, Fox News contributor, fellow at AEI, co-host of the podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Also, former chief speechwriter to President George W. Bush. And, Mark, I feel like What the Hell is Going On could be the unofficial slogan of America for the last six years. <laughs> we chose a good title for our podcast, no question. But what the hell is going on is I don't have a long drink. I don't have a, so- a short drink. I, you've given me no drink for for, for a cocktail hour well, here. So, I mean, what's going? what the hell is going on, guy? We don't encourage <laughs> drinking on the air usually. Oh, it's so much better. <laughs> it can, well, so, it's so much better with cocktails. So here's the thing on that. So I will, I will confess that there are certain shows, if I'm going to go do TV, there are certain shows where a cocktail helps. So Gutfeld is one of them. Yeah. Kennedy is another one. And my general rule of thumb is don't drink before you're on the air. For those shows, one drink, maybe two, absolute maximum. Three, you are playing with fire, and it might all go downhill in your career. So you're saying end. you're not one of those people, and I should be having a cocktail because I have to talk to you. I'm saying it's <laughs> – I'm saying use your discretion. When you come on the program, especially here in the happy hour, you could grab a long drink. And it is in Washington, D.C. now. It has arrived here in the nation's capital. It's delicious. So uh, that's your assignment. Go have one. Report back. Next time I come on, you have one for Uh, me. Oh, oh, I see. We're going to provide one for you. It's your your sponsor. That is true. (laughs) You should be handing them out willy-nilly to all the guests, right? We should have them in a little mini fridge here in the studio. I love it. Next time. We have them at the house. Okay. So that's our backup plan, perhaps. We can have you for a social call. I would love that. And feed you some long drinks. I would love We that. actually had uh, the former Attorney General Bill Barr and his wife over recently. Mm-hmm. We were talking up the long drink. Barr looked a little skeptical, handed off a couple to him. We got the report back. Two thumbs up. Excellent. And I think that's a good endorsement. 
from Ben. He doesn't mess around that guy. Absolutely. No, he does not. (laughs) All right, Mark. So let's talk about what the hell is going on on a few different fronts. The reason we need to drink. (laughs) Well, I mean, there are so many of them. Let's pick a reason. But let's say the primary reason at the moment is President Joe Biden. Yes. And his administration. So I saw today the Real Clear Politics average had the president hit yet another fresh low on approval. He was dipping below 38 percent. I mean, this is worse than Trump was. Yep. And I think based on reports, this is really grating at the president. It is yeah. galling to him. He seems not to understand how it's possible. He's mad at the media, which I think is always a tell. If a Democrat's blaming the media, they're in real trouble because the media really tries to prop them up. Yeah. Sometimes the propping just isn't possible. <laughs> right? That's true. And Joe Biden needs a lot of propping, uh, both literally and figuratively. Um, look, he he shouldn't be surprised. I mean, he's already, even before today's numbers, the most unpopular president in the history of presidential polling. Uh, on his 500th day in office, he was less popular than every president from Truman to Trump uh, in, on that 500-day mark, which we, he just hit about a week ago. So – you know, I don't know what he expects. Well, why, why would he be so unpopular? Maybe because it's we have the worst inflation in 40 years, the uh, worst border crisis in American history, the worst crime wave since the 1990s, the highest gas prices on record, uh, baby formula shortage. Uh, we're about to hit. Uh, we're about to have blackouts this summer. I don't know if you saw the Washington Post reported uh, that because of the war on fossil fuels, um, and they also say climate change, but that's not really the reason. It's because we don't have enough uh, don't have enough uh, fossil fuel plants that are going offline. There are going to be blackouts across the Midwest this summer. There have always been blackouts in California for, for obvious reasons. Texas to some extent. Yeah, Texas had some uh, Texas, Texas has problems. Never had blackouts in the Midwest. It's, it's had stable electricity for decades. And we're going to have blackouts this summer because, one, nuclear plant, major nuclear plant in Michigan just shut down. Uh, so we're not going to there. The Democrats, for some reason, the climate, the climate advocates aren't embracing nuclear power and they've been pushing coal plants out. John Kerry said at the COP26, we want a Biden administration goal. No coal plants in America by 2030. What is it, just like windmills or nothing. Well, yeah, what, what's the position? It is. Here? And, and here's the thing also is that windmills, you know, we don't have actually battery technology to store wind and solar power. It doesn't exist. So if you have wind and solar and there's no wind and sun, you have no electricity. But yet we are pushing to become reliant on these things while pushing out fossil fuels, which may make sense from a, uh, from a climate standpoint. But why nuclear? No, that makes no why, sense. Why nuclear? Why would you get rid of nuclear plants? Why would you not be building nuclear plants? The Germans all over the are country? getting burned on this too, yeah. right? And because they were listening to a teenager from Scandinavia, apparently, to set their energy policy. Exactly. It yes. hasn't been going well for them lately. Not at all. Not at all. So, so we got blackouts coming. So it's going to get – you know, you thought it couldn't be, get worse. Those be Putin's it's blackouts? Going to be, it's the Putin blackouts. The Putin blackouts? Yeah, exactly. So, and you know, the Putin – everything's going to be Putin. Putin, Putin, Putin. But here's the thing. They love these high gas prices. They love these high energy prices. They just don't want to be blamed for them because they think that the high gas prices are going to force you to get an electric car. And, oh, by the way, where do the components from an electric car come from for a battery? China. China has, is doing China. all – Yeah, China. Exactly. Um, they are not only – is it coming well, from electric, China? They're going across Africa, and I just came back from South Africa. Highway filled with trucks with minerals heading for the port in, in Mozambique to send them to China. They are buying up all the mines across Africa, all the rare earths around the world. The CCP is. The, the Communist China Party of China. Yes. So that when we, be, when we switch from fossil fuels, which we are the world's largest producer of, to clean energy, green energy, we will be dependent on China for all the – for all. and do you know where? Solar panels. 
Polysilicon is the key component of solar panels. You know where that comes from? Xinjiang province. Oh. The Uyghurs make it. Ah. So we are actually making ourselves not just dependent on China, but on Uyghur slave labor for yeah, our the, the electricity. Future, the future is dependent on slave labor. Amen. From the there Chinese you go. Communist Party. What a good <laughs> outlook we have there. I'm, here, I, I'm here to lift you up. Yeah, this has been very <laughs> this has been very pleasant. Get me a drink. Get me a long drink. Get Stat. drinks. This is what I said. I do want to come back to something that you just said, but one other quick point on the electric cars thing, mm-hmm. which are very expensive, unaffordable for most Americans at this point. And your point about the components also very good. Also, beyond that, Electricity does not grow on trees. Electricity has to come from somewhere as well. That's part of the issue here. And I know some of these cars need to be charged quite often to drive long distances, and we're not really there yet in terms of this being workable for a lot of Americans right now. So the the war on energy is incoherent in a lot of ways premature. We're not ready to get from point A to point B where they want us to get, but they're shoving us toward that cliff as quickly as possible while sort of lying about it and saying, no, no, we're not doing that. A friend of mine recently bought a Tesla, and I said, how do you like your uh, coal-powered car? (laughs) Because that's literally what it is. It's like, remember the old, like the 1920s movies with the black and white film and the steam engine, the guy's shoveling the steam into the fire to keep the steam engine going? That's literally what a Tesla is. That's literally what a Tesla is right now. Um, no, it's, it, and uh, yeah, it, it's it's just. Uh, what brought you to South Africa? Was that a vacation? Vacation, or, vacation. Not a reporting trip. No, I, I no, it was not a reporting trip. I, I wish it was a reporting trip. No, I went uh, went on uh, went on went to Cape Town for a few days and went on safari, uh, and saw. I was literally as far as away as I am from you. I was far away from a lion uh, eating a Cape buffalo. Well. <laughs> And quite clearly, I am far more terrifying you and are, intimidating. Absolutely. Uh, I'd spent my 30th birthday in Cape Town. Did you really? It was awesome. Oh, it's such a great town. It is a, did you make it beautiful. up to Stellenbosch at all? We uh, made it to Constantina, which okay. is another wine region. Um, but it's yeah. a beautiful oh, place. Yeah. That, that country has some very serious problems. Yes, it does. Unfortunately, right now. But Cape Town, just the, the beauty and some of the history, you can't argue with that. Table Mountain, I mean, just amazing. And Boulder's Beach where they have the African penguins just come right up to you and like, yeah. eat out of your hand. Yeah, no, it's, it's a special place. Yep. Now, getting back to this country and Escape. the real world. And, escapism. And real life, I want the escapism. I know. I like, escapism. I'm, I'm tantalized <laughs> by your vacation stories. But back here, I don't know if you saw this, and I mentioned it earlier in the show. There's a Monmouth poll out yesterday, I believe, that really scrambles some of the narrative on abortion for the Democrats. Mm-hmm. And then a YouGov poll today on the generic ballot that has Republicans gaining since the Dobbs decision came out, which contradicts some of the other polls I've seen. For example, CNN was hyping the NPR poll that showed the Democrats gaining. Well, here's one going in the other direction. I have been arguing since the leak pretty specifically on this show, abortion polling and public opinion is messy and complicated and often contradictory. And I think confident predictions in either direction are foolhardy. And my overall analysis, even as someone who cares a lot about the issue, is you will have some hardcore people on both sides heavily moved. You will get a lot of attention put on the issue, which will benefit Democrats in some ways. I think the Democrats overreach in other ways and turn people off. And I'm not sure that the overall trajectory of 2022 really changes due to the massive black hole of inflation and everything yep. else, sort of blotting out the sun and everything else. And at least so far, we have now seen in the last couple of days 
a scatter plot of polling data on this, which tells some stories, but maybe not exactly the story that the media and the Democrats would like. Yeah. So I, I endorse your view of the polling. I did a column on the in the Washington Post about this and did a deep dive into the polling on abortion. Sixty seven percent of Americans believed that Ro- overturning Roe v. Wade would make abortion illegal banned across the United States. So when which Roe is v- false, which is false. So when when abortion when when they woke up on the day after the Dobbs decision and found that abortion was, in fact, not banned across the country, though, in, though in some states where there's political support for that. Uh, they realized that uh, and that 15 work abortion bans were now were now OK and all the rest of it. They realized and are starting to realize and more and more are learning that that's not all the all the histrionics from the left about what would happen are not true. Now, what is happening? The the reality is that the vast majority of Americans, even those who call themselves pro-choice, do not identify as pro-choice the way the Democratic Party does today. That's right. The Democratic orthodoxy today used to be safe, legal and rare. Then the Democrats got rid of rare in their party platform, and it is now – they don't say it this way, but this is literally the law in New York State, literally law in California – taxpayer-funded abortion on demand up until the moment of birth. That is not where the American people are. No, it's radical. Seventy percent plus support restrictions on abortion, 15 weeks, sometimes even even less than that. I think where most Americans are would be safe, legal – and heavily limited. Yeah. That's sort of where most people are, but neither party actually represents that. The Republicans right now do more so, I would say, than the Democrats do, yeah. who are way out there on, on the ledge that you were talking about. Mark, we're almost out of time, but I have to ask you to end on a lighter note. You're a New York Rangers fan, RIP. Yes. They lost in the playoffs. My Devils didn't even make the playoffs, I know. <laughs> are you satisfied with the Stanley Cup final result with Colorado beating the Lightning? Uh, I was. It was a fascinating uh, Stanley Cup final. I I thought it was great. Both teams were great. I love the fact that the Colorado Avalanche broke the cup within five minutes of getting it. <laughs> I thought get that some was glue awesome. back together. And I'm really happy that the New York Rangers made it to the conference final game six of the conference finals. The future is bright for the they New York had a, Rangers. They had a good year, and I was rooting for Colorado because Tampa's been great, but it was time for someone else. Mark Thiessen, great to see you in person. Great to be here. Thank you. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Back after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. We're back on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. It's time, sort of, for Woke Tales. That's our backwards Woke Tales jingle. When perhaps sanity is being restored and Woke Tales is being rolled back. If you don't know the real jingle, here it is. So today's reverse woke tale story comes to us from George Washington University, which has been a hotbed of insanity, actually, in the last couple of years, including very recently announcing that they're going to be changing their nickname, the Colonials, because I guess that's offensive. Even though that makes absolutely no sense in the colonial dynamic, they were not the oppressors. Doesn't matter. It has something to do with colonies and colonization, so it has to go. I swear they're going to come after George Washington and that name at some point. I've seen a few rumblings. There was an op-ed about that. That's next. Unless this university starts to hold the line more often, which they have done this week. So in the wake of the Dobbs decision, Justice Clarence Thomas has gotten a lot of criticism. Thomas is an adjunct professor at George Washington University. And some people in the community started demanding, as they do, that the university sever ties with the Supreme Court justice. Get him out of here. 
We can't have, oh, we can't have him. Get him out. And the university put out a statement, a letter to members of the community. And they said that there are people within that community who have feelings of deep disagreement with the decision on overturning Roe versus Wade. But they have said that Justice Thomas's concurring opinion on substantive due process and some of his points are longstanding arguments that he has made, which is true. They write that Justice Thomas's views do not represent the views of the university or the law school. Everyone understands that. And, quote, like all faculty members at our university, Justice Thomas has academic freedom and freedom of expression and inquiry. Our university's academic freedom guidelines state, and then they quote the policy, which is actually a decent policy. And the letter concludes, just as we affirm our commitment to academic freedom, we affirm the right of all members of our community to voice their opinions and contribute to the critical discussions that are foundational to our academic mission. So basically, your concerns are duly noted. You are willing to note those concerns and to raise them. We are not going to throw Justice Thomas out of our community because he has the right to free expression. Also, imagine having the opportunity to take a class with a sitting Supreme Court justice and saying that person should no longer be allowed to teach because you don't like something that he or she has written. Like if I had a chance to take a class with Sonia Sotomayor, that would be amazing, even though I think she's wrong on almost everything. So GW actually stood up to the jackals this time, and they deserve some credit for that. And lastly, within the reverse woke tales vein, did you see that the Top Gun movie, the new reboot, the sequel, that came out a few weeks ago, we talked about it, we really liked it. It is just a box office smash hit, now over a billion dollars in revenue from Top Gun Maverick without kowtowing to China, without following the censor's demands on the Taiwanese flag and a few other things. They ultimately said pound sand. The movie was censored in China, and it's made a billion dollars. So you can stand up to the Chinese Communist Party, you can ignore their censors, and you can still do extremely well. I hope that Hollywood broadly and other studios are taking notice because this is a positive development that hopefully will reinforce additional good decisions and behavior in the future. And that is Reverse Woke Tales. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. More right after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in, GuyBensonShow.com. Earlier in the program today, we had Bill Malugin back here, one of our correspondents at the border. He has been reporting on all things border crisis and illegal immigration for months now. A lot of breaking news and very sad news on that front in the last couple of days. Here's part of my exchange with Fox News Channel's Bill Malugin. Tell us the details on this story. What are you hearing from your sources on the ground? Well, first off, you mentioned it, you know, baking today. This is one of the worst ways imaginable that somebody 
could die. Um, we're getting into some of the peak heat out there in South Texas right now. And these people were trapped inside of that big rig trailer, that metal truck, literally, as you said, baking alive. And um, the, the, yeah, it, it's, it, it's, it's, it's just horrible. It's slow. Um, and, you know, there are these reports that some of the cartel smugglers actually put steak seasoning on them to mask the smell of some of the bodies before they left. Just absolutely oh horrific. God. And, it, and, and, and it just goes to show that these smugglers have absolutely zero regard for human life. They never do. It's just it's it's money to them. It's 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 human cargo. And, and that's it. And. This isn't. I know this is getting a lot of media attention now because of the numbers of a, a single event like this. But people have been dying in these human smuggling events almost weekly for o- over a year now. And, and you know, we've been covering this. Just this morning, somebody, a migrant, died in the Rio Grande Valley human smuggler pursuit. They rolled over. He got ejected. He died. This isn't new. The the scope of this one is obviously the worst in history because there are so many dead people. But human smuggling events take place at the border every single day, multiple times a day. And what happened here is once these uh, illegal immigrants came across the border, they're usually put up in stash houses by the cartels. Then once enough of them have crossed and paid, they will get put into a truck like this or some sort of container or, you know, we've seen them in these gravel trailers before, although the, the cartels will try to get creative and, um, they'll then promise to take them deeper into the United States, and we don't know why this truck was abandoned. We don't know if maybe they thought law enforcement were onto them or, or what the deal was. But at some point, these smugglers just decided to leave this big rig trailer, uh, essentially off a small little skinny road in the middle of nowhere in the brutal heat, and they were locked inside. And mm. 53 are now dead so far, literally baked, baked alive. Yeah, just this agonizing death. It is horrific to hear and read about some of these details. I cannot imagine having to witness it and investigate what happened here. There has been a big political fight over this, Bill. As you know, Governor Abbott laying these deaths directly at the doorstep of the White House and President Biden, the White House clapping back and objecting to that. And I sort of try to have a nuanced view of this, which is I don't hold Joe Biden or Alejandro Mayorkas or the administration directly responsible for these deaths. I don't say that they have blood on their hands. They killed these people. But I also don't absolve them of moral culpability because it is basically undeniable that the policies of this administration have led to record-shattering increases in illegal immigration, emboldening and enriching the cartels and these smugglers The incentive is more powerful than ever. The magnet is as strong as ever. And when that's the policy that you have erected, when that is your policy, then when there are horrible externalities that result from those incentives, people responding to those incentives, then you have something to do. Your fingerprints, at least partially, are on those tragedies and those bad things that result because if fewer people were coming because they were being discouraged to come, not just with words but with policy, there would be less likelihood of this type of thing happening. The likelier it is, the more of it you're going to get. And I can't just say that the White House 
gets to skate on this either. I wonder what you think, without getting into editorial, because I know you're on the news side, you just report on this stuff. What do you make as someone who watches this day in and day out of now a little bit of this political food fight that's broken out? Look, objectively speaking, I'm on the same page as you are. You can't blame Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or Mayorkas directly for the deaths of these. They did not force these cartel members to pick them up and leave them off the side of the road. However, as you mentioned, it is undeniable that their policies have introduced what we call pull factors, reasons why migrants are coming to the U.S. in historical, historical numbers. That conversation in its entirety with Bill Malugin, available at GuyBensonShow.com and also on our free podcast, on demand every day, the entire show, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Quiet Wyatt is back from his Disney World vacation. He's been back for a few days, but we've had Backstreet Boys things to discuss on the home stretch. We will turn our attention to Wyatt's triumphant return. Christine has questions. All of that coming up. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show on this Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free every day on demand. Check me out tonight on the special report panel on set with Brett Bayer and company in the 6 p.m. hour coming up here on Fox News Channel. If you're listening on the broadcast, I apologize because we just put that earworm into your brain. It's a small world after all. You might be stuck in there and rattling around for a while. So sorry, but not really that sorry because we wanted to use that as our bumper song to get into this home stretch segment and topic on Quiet Wyatt's return from Disney World. Although, Christine, I have a new nickname for Wyatt. I know we have... Why, why the clown? We have Quiet Wyatt. We have War Wyatt. There's a whole bunch of them. How about this on the Disney stuff? Walt Wyatt. Oh my goodness, you're a genius, right? How did we yeah, not Walt think Wyatt. Before? I don't. It came to me today in a stroke of pure genius, and it just like a wow. like a lightning bolt as I drove in. And so I greeted Wyatt. I hadn't seen him in a week and a half, and I said, "Welcome back, Walt Wyatt." And he raised his eyebrows. He said, "That's a new one." So he has returned from vacation a couple days ago, and we wanted to get to it sooner, but we had all the Backstreet Boys excitement to discuss the last few days. And I did promise that we were not going to continue talking about it, except here's the one thing. In our group text, when I sent you the video from Brian Luttrell of the Backstreet Boys to you, Cookie, and we played it on the air and you're watching it, how many times have you watched it today? Uh, I think only five. Only five times. Okay, so you were very excited. It was in the group chat, and Wyatt responded to the group chat saying he had no idea who that was. Wyatt, you did not recognize him at all? Absolutely not. Did not know who that was. Have you heard of the Backstreet Boys? Yes, but I couldn't honestly tell you a song that they played unless I was told it. Can you fill in the blank for me here? Because I want it. That way. Okay. Okay. Ah! So, well done. That's that's like the bare minimum of understanding, but we'll allow it. Good. But that is one of the members of the band who Christine is now, I think, maybe getting into stalker mode with. I'm not making that allegation. I think that she's just – I know how her brain works, and she might be going back to some of her 
teenage fantasies. But she, of course, is happily married. So is Brian, Chrissy, and I'll just remind you. So let's just Mm -hmm. hold our horses here collectively. All right, Wyatt, (laughs) so you were on vacation down in Florida in Orlando at Disney. You spent your 22nd birthday there, so congratulations and happy belated birthday. Thank you. Do you feel a year older? Do you feel wiser? Do you feel like a grizzled veteran at this point at a ripe old 22? You know, honestly, it did not feel like my birthday being at Disney, and but I do have to say I, I do feel a little wiser. A little wiser. Now, you missed a whole saga here at the show while you were gone. I was supposed to go to Florida. I was supposed to go down uh, to Fort Lauderdale to meet with Governor DeSantis and a few other people at an event. I was excited about it. We had some interviews lined up. Then the whole thing went to hell because of travel nightmares. And there were multiple delays and cancellations. Bottom line was I couldn't end up making it down there. I went to New York instead for some TV stuff. But at one point we were discussing on the air, in your absence, the possibility of what if, with all the flights not working and the cascading effect, what if Cookie hopped in the car in New Jersey drove down to pick me up in D.C., and then we drove south together up against the clock. And she made the point we might have had to make a pit stop in Orlando on our way through central Florida down to south Florida. What would you have done if it's just your birthday and you're on vacation and you're not thinking about Guy or Christine or the show, then all of a sudden you're at Disney (laughs) and we roll in? What would you do? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I think one (laughs) thing that you could have done to avoid this, if you had gotten any sort of inkling that we were coming, you could have gone into YY the clown mode with your balloon making and everything and put on full clown makeup and then posed as a mime. And that would have kept Christine away because she is triggered by mimes because she was mugged by a mime in her early years back as a teenager in high school. She's on a school trip to France and she was mugged and robbed by a mime. So that could be maybe the way that you could have kept her at a distance being like, well, I think that's why, but he might be a mime. So we're staying off. We're not going there. I just wanted to bring that uh, pro tip into this conversation because it's highly relevant, obviously. How was the trip? Did you enjoy it? Was this a relaxing vacation? Um, are you glad you spent your birthday this way? Um, I told you guys on the call, I described the trip as crowded and hot because it was both of those things. Um, but that it doesn't was, sound, that does not sound very relaxing or fun. Yeah, I, it, it was definitely fun. I would not call this trip relaxing at all because it was a lot going on and a lot of walking and eating and all that. You also have a philosophy, if I recall correctly, that when you're at Disney, you want to maximize your time at the park. So you're there from the moment the gates open until they close. Did you, first of all, how many hours is that? And did you maintain that position throughout your trip? Uh, I did not. And, and, but a lot of it came from, from my brother understanding what, because he's, he's now working there. So he understood where we should go and to maximize our time in terms of getting on rides. He got us on one of the new big rides, which was actually really, really cool. Like, honestly, like I've been on all Disney rides. This one, which one is that? It's, the new one. it's the guardians of the galaxy. And it's like space mountain, but on crack. Like I, I have never <laughs> experienced anything like this ride. So it was worth just going to just 
do that one ride. But we we kind of maneuvered our way into hitting all the rides in certain ways and making pit stops at shows. So like very strategic planning this time. Yes. Because you had inside intel exactly. from your brother, a park employee. Exactly. Uh-huh. All right. That sounds better than the show up at 8 a.m. and leave at midnight plan. Are those hours correct? Well, yeah. I, this time we just we went later into the parks but stayed stayed later. So we didn't go to opening, but we stayed till closing. When the crowds are less and the heat is less, so that's how it worked. This how trip. much time did you spend in Disney in a full tweed suit reading the Wall Street <laughs> Journal with a monocle just to pass some time? Didn't do any of that. Did a lot of eating and... Again, just a lot of eating. Like, I feel honestly <laughs> gross of all the food and different things that I ate that I probably should not have. Well, you do not appear to have gained any weight at all, if it's any consolation. Christine, I know you've got a couple questions here. Let's keep them relatively minimal, because I've already interrogated Wyatt here, but I wanted to give you a chance because I know that you were eager. Well, you kind of, like, blew through half the questions I was going to ask, but can I just say this one thing from listening to this? Why it doesn't sound like you had a good time at Disney. And, like, you said it's hot and you had to walk a lot. And that, to me, is what Disney is. Maybe we should try somewhere else another vacation. What are you thinking? Can we stop well, at Disney? I, I want, I'm going to call the trip not good or not a great trip. But I think collectively as a group of me and my siblings, we kind of decided that it was like not the best Disney experience considering the crowd and the heat. Could but, you call it a slightly less magical kingdom? Yeah, but we <laughs> did have a really good time together. And I do believe having great memories and fun with your siblings, even though you are older, I do think that that is something important. So that was mission accomplished. All right, Christine, and, and next I, up. I, I, I no, I agree with that. I really do. I just want to, as a producer, I would like to produce your next vacation. And I'm just going to say to Wyatt and the kids, the, the siblings, let's, let's, let's move away from Disney for a little bit. Let's do something else, a little more grown up. I got you. We'll figure that out next. Okay. Uh, due to the heat, Wyatt, I assume it would be very hard to wear your Fox News sweater vest or any of your, you know, Fox <laughs> News gear. What happens? Do you have, you know, summer gear that has Fox News labels all over it? Do we have Guy Benson show tank tops? We should. Oh, we totally should. We oh should my have some God. swag. How and about some cookie khaki? I've unleashed, I've unleashed How, something here. Oh, this is genius. We should make cookie khakis. Khakis? Yes. You, you people love your khakis, don't you? It's like the smart man, you know, very... Uh, I don't really wear khakis. Wyatt wears a lot of khakis. If you oh. ask him, it's Wyatt from State Farm, what are you wearing? Khakis. <laughs> I wear a lot of jeans. So, Wyatt, what, uh, what did you wear, I think, is Christine's question here, to yes, try to pull you. this back onto the tracks. Yes. Um, I, I wore just T-shirts and shorts, just like regular things that... People wear when they go to Disney. Did you wear the mouse ears on your head? I did not. You did, did not? not? No, I, I don't actively own a pair of those. Sorry. Actively. Did own. You, you like rent Can I do it? one more? Yeah, go ahead quickly. Um, one, was there any character breakfast? And two, how come I haven't been sent a picture of you with any of the characters? I know you took some. 
Christine, I will I will tell you I did not take any pictures with any characters and we did not do any breakfasts with characters, but we did do a really nice dinner at one of the more high-end restaurants and I got a nice Mickey Mouse shaped cake for my birthday. So that was kind of fun. Very quickly, Wyatt, and this is a callback to last week, not that you would know because you weren't here, but did you dine at Epcot in Canada and did you have poutine? I did not, but I we I mean we went to every country and had food and had drinks and had just everything. So I didn't actively eat in Canada, but I know I had something Near Canada, I honestly could not remember. I'm willing to bet they have poutine, or as Christine would call them, what do you call them, Christine? Disco fries. Disco fries. I had never heard of that. Poutine is what they're called. It's a Canadian delicacy, if you will. All right, Wyatt, well, welcome back. It's good to see you. I'm about to leave, and you pointed out that whenever you or Christine or yours truly goes on vacation, something huge happens. We had the Dobbs case. We had when on my last vacation, the Ukraine war broke out. There was Afghanistan when that whole mess went down last summer. There was the Supreme Court leak when Christine was on vacation. So I'm on vacation next week. So we're just bracing to see what might happen. But we are out of time for today. I'm on special report coming up next on Fox News Channel in the next hour. Back here tomorrow for the Guy Benson Show. Same time, same place. Thank you for listening. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.